Well, good morning, everyone. Um, thanks for being here. We're going to go ahead and start just a couple minutes early today and get things rolling. Um, if you're curious, we're talking about the Epistle of Jude this morning, just in case you meant to go to a different class. There we go. Thank you, Nick. So each week I've been trying to go back and recover the things that we've discussed um, up to this point. So that way anybody who's joining us who has missed a class or maybe this is your first time, we want to make sure that you're caught up to where we're at. So a little bit about my methodology here as we've been studying the book of Jude. I've been approaching it um, with this five-step process that's outlined in the book Grasping God's Word written by De- uh Danny Hayes and Scott Duvall. So their approach to scripture um, is is one that I highly would encourage you to take as well, right? So it's a five-step journey. The very first step of this, you see a little biblical village over on the side, right? We want to grasp the text in their town, which means we need to understand what did the text mean to the author and to the original audience, Okay, so if we're trying to interpret scripture and we're completely ignoring, right, the context of this, then we're likely to miss out on the actual message of God's word. The second step, we have a river that's separating that biblical times village from our contemporary town today. And that river represents the differences between them and us. So things like culture language. So if it's the Old Testament, probably in Hebrew or Aramaic, if it's the New Testament, Greek, um, things as well as the time and the situation, the historical context, as well as the place in redemptive history. So understanding the differences between them and us, right, is going to help us to filter out things that were very specific to their context, which leads us to the third step, uh, which is crossing the bridge from their town to ours. So we're trying to understand, in light of the differences between them and us, understanding what the text meant to them, therefore, what should the text mean for us today? All right, which takes us to our fourth step, consulting the biblical map. So we do believe in what's called the prospicuity of Scripture, which is a fancy word for saying that Scripture interprets Scripture. All right, so it's very important for us, once we've arrived at this principle— of scripture to then take it and hold it up against the testimony of the rest of God's word. It's very possible to take one passage of scripture outside of the context of the whole counsel of God's word and come up with all kinds of crazy ideas, right? So this is why it's important for us to make sure that the principle we've arrived at is consistent with the whole counsel of God. So in addition to that, we also want to consult with historical theology. Going back to things like the church fathers, understanding how has the church understood and interpreted this passage throughout history. If you're the first person in history to ever come up with this interpretation, it's time to go back to the drawing board. You're probably wrong. Right? And that takes us to the fifth step, grasping the text in our town. So now that we understand what it meant to the author, to the original audience, we've determined what are the differences between them and us and arrived at a principle Right? That can bridge both of those contexts. We've held it up against the testimony of the rest of God's word and the church fathers and church historical theology. Now we're able to start applying that principle to our contemporary world today. So what have we discussed thus far with Jude? Well, in order to grasp the text in their town, we have to understand who wrote the book. So we asked the question in our first week together, who was the author of Jude? Well, pretty self-explanatory here. The author was Jude. Um, Now, who was Jude? Jude was the brother of James, the bishop of ancient Jerusalem, and also the brother of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we understand that Jude didn't uh, apparently believe in Jesus as the Messiah during his earthly ministry. It was sometime after the crucifixion, um, but sometime before the day of Pentecost when Jude came to believe right, in Jesus as the Christ. And during this time, he was serving as an itinerant preacher among the churches in Galilee. So that takes us to our second question. Who was Jude's intended audience? In order to grasp the text in their town, we've got to identify where was their town. So we looked at a bunch of different options, but concluded that Jude is writing to a group of first-generation Christians who are living in Galilee, right? 
So this is uh, pretty much the hometown territory of Jesus and his family. Right? These are folks who are worshiping in the churches that had been planted by the apostles themselves. So the third question that we asked is, what is the genre? And this is really important for us as we're interpreting scripture, because there are different types of genres that require different approaches to interpretation. We're not going to interpret a historical narrative in the same way that we would interpret, say, a psalm or something from the wisdom literature. Okay, so Jude is a a fairly unique genre. It's a Jewish apocalyptic style, kind of similar to John's Revelation. Um, This style was really popular um, among Palestinian Jews in the first century before the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Um, This book is steeped in Greek speech rhetoric, but also deeply steeped in Jewish Midrash and Pesher hermeneutic approaches to interpretation. So the date of Jude is also really important. And and able to understand what the text meant to the original audience, we need to know when was it written. So we looked at a bunch of possibilities and determined that it was probably written between 48 and 58 AD, which makes it one of the very earliest, if not the earliest book in the New Testament. So this was written and distributed most likely before any of Paul's epistles were written and distributed among the churches. It was written and distributed most likely before any of the written gospel accounts were distributed among the churches, which helps us to also understand why it is that Jude doesn't seem to be directly quoting from any apostolic witnesses, Um, simply because the, the apostolic letters of Paul and Peter probably James, hadn't even been written yet. So Jude actually tells us his purpose for writing to his original audience. He tells them that he has long intended to write to them, but this has become much more urgent because he says certain people have crept into the church unnoticed. Right? There's an urgent crisis that has arisen, and so now he's compelled to write to them, urging them to contend for the faith that was once for all handed down by the apostles. So Jude begins to make his case against these opponents, these people who have crept into the church unnoticed. He tells us, first of all, that long ago they were destined for condemnation. Jude seems to believe that his opponents were the subjects of prophetic condemnation, um, which we're going to look at today. Um, seems to be coming from a prophecy of a character named Enoch. Second, he calls them ungodly people, right? The word in Greek here is asebes. And that word shows up in the uh, Hebrew Old Testament. It also shows up in in other popular writings of the time, right? And asebes, or ungodly people, is always given to us in contrast against those who are righteous, against those who keep the laws and precepts of God. Okay? Um, So he's telling us here that his opponents are really, really emphatic in their antinomianism. Uh, Antinomianism, kind of a big word, it just means against the law, right? They've rejected the law of Moses. And then third... He says that they pervert grace into sensuality, which most certainly means that they're using grace as a license to engage in illicit sexual practices. And lastly, he accuses them of denying Jesus Christ himself rather than submitting to Jesus' authority, right? Because what does Jesus tell us in the Gospels about the law? Did he come to end the law or to shut it down? No. He says, I I didn't come to do that. I actually came to fulfill the law. So rather than submitting to Jesus' authority, they have become a law unto themselves. Jude then provides us with three historic examples of people who have done similar things and how God responded. So the first that he provides to us is the unbelieving after the exodus. And this is a reference to the events that occurred um, as written in the book of Numbers, chapters 13 through 14. Right? These folks were faithless. Even after the exodus, after seeing God work mightily and sending ten plagues upon the Egyptians, 
right? Splitting the Red Sea, um, providing light to them, directing them through a cloud and a pillar of fire. Still, they don't believe in the power of God and they reject what he has commanded them. The consequence of this is that they provoked God's wrath and judgment. He forbade them from entering into the promised land. The second example that he provides to us is that of the fallen angels. And this account is probably a little bit different than the one you may be familiar with. Okay, so he's actually referencing back to Genesis chapter 6, which is expanded upon greatly in the pseudepigraphal, non-canonical book of First Enoch, chapters 6 through 11. Right? These angels left the heavenly place that God had created for them, came to earth, and took the daughters of men as their wives, according to Genesis 6 and First Enoch 6 through 11. They abandoned his creational purpose for themselves, and they teach humanity right, and encourage humanity to do the same. The consequence of this is that they provoked God's wrath and punishment. The third example that he provides to us is that of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, right, whose sexual immorality and pursuit of unnatural desire provoked what? God's wrath and punishment. He's making a pretty clear and compelling case for us here. So Jude then brings some direct indictments against his opponents. First, he says that they're dreamers, and this is definitely intended by Jude in a pejorative way. His opponents seem to be citing some sort of special revelation that they've received through their own dreams as a source of final authority for doctrine and ethics. But these dreams actually contradict the commands of Scripture and the apostolic faith. Second, he says that they defile the flesh. And this phrase is one that appears repeatedly, again, in 1 Enoch. Right? It's used to describe the sinful rebellion of the angels against God through abominable sexual acts. And Jude is most certainly using it here to further address his opponent's sexual sin. In this, they're like both the fallen angels and the men of Sodom. And Jude expects that God will handle them similarly. Third, he says that they reject authority. Jude's opponents are like both the post-Exodus Israelites and the fallen angels in that they fail to acknowledge their role in the order of God's creation. Rather than submitting to their rightful position in obedience to God, they subvert his authority and the authoritative teaching of Jesus to pursue their own plans. Right? Fourth, he says that they blaspheme the glorious ones. Jude's opponents claim to receive divine revelation of the, the law, uh, that, which explicitly contradicts um, the law and the gospel found in the scriptures and in the apostolic tradition that has been handed down. They're claiming divine authority to challenge the apostles, the prophets, Moses, and even Christ himself. And this leads Jude to a cryptic reference about the archangel Michael, who contended with the devil over Moses' body. Now, that story does not exist in our canon of Scripture. We're told by ancient sources that it was an account from this other pseudepigraphal uh, book, The Assumption of Moses, of which there are no existing manuscripts today. But his main point here is to indicate that even the archangel didn't claim personal authority to bring judgment against the devil. Instead, he said, the Lord rebuke you. And this is really important. It's going to come up in what we're talking about today. Jude makes clear that his opponents are rejecting the law of God without even understanding what it is or what it means. This is much like our contemporaries who reject the moral law of the scriptures by citing other scripture completely out of context or interpreted in a way that is completely foreign to the authorial intent. We gave some examples of that previously. So, for instance, when people hear you saying what the Bible says and they tell you, well, don't judge, right? As if that's actually what Jesus says, right? It's taken out of context. Jesus doesn't say don't judge ever under any circumstances whatsoever. Jesus says that don't judge... Because if you do, you'll be judged in the same way that you're judging other people. 
Okay, we've got other passages of Scripture, right? Again, the perspicuity of Scripture that tell us actually that we are to go to our brothers when they're in sin and in error. We're to point out their sin and error, right? And to exhort them to repent and return back to the faith that's been handed down. So fifth, Jude says of his opponents that they are condemned by their own carnality. Their lack of self-control in terms of their greed, their power tactics over others, and their sexual licentiousness proves to everyone around that they are not from God. Jude then offers three more historical biblical figures to which he likens his opponents. So the first of those is the character of Cain, right? who we read about in Genesis chapter 4. Cain was a rebel who didn't believe God's judgment would come, right? The story, Cain comes with an offering. He was a, a gardener, and he brings some vegetables. It wasn't the first fruits, wasn't even the best of the batch, but he brings it as an offering. And his brother, Abel, um, who is a herdsman, brings the finest sheep, right, of his fold. God accepts Abel's offering. He rejects Cain's offering, and Cain turns around and murders his brother Abel. And God curses Cain, but Cain doesn't accept that curse. He doesn't accept the judgment of God. We're told in the rest of Genesis that Cain continued to be a rebel. He was a murderer. He was a rapist. He stole from people, right? And so he's actually telling us, Jude is telling us, right, that his opponents are like Cain, They, too, are challenging God's authority in order to live according to their own greed and lust. And they even entice others to join in their sin. Second, he says that they rush into Balaam's error, right? And this is another account from the Old Testament, Numbers chapter 22 through 24, and then again in chapter 31. Now, Balaam was a prophet for money. He was greedy. And he enticed others to join him in sin for his own financial gain. And third, Jude says that his opponents perish in Korah's rebellion. And this is an account that's recorded for us in Numbers chapter 16. Korah was a priest whose pride led him to reject godly authority. So this account happens following the story of Joshua and Caleb going with the spies into the promised land. They come back. Some of the other spies say, yeah, it's a great land, but it's occupied by giants and we can't take it. And how dare God tell us to go and and do this? We're going to die in the land, right? And so uh, God punishes the people. He tells them that they won't be able to enter the promised land for a whole generation. For 40 years, they're cursed and condemned to wander in the wilderness. And Korah leads a rebellion against this. He does not accept God's punishment He wants to overthrow godly authority by overthrowing Moses and Aaron as God's representatives. And he entices others to join in his rebellion, which ultimately brings disaster upon the whole congregation. So at this point, I think it's really important to point out, every time that Jude gives us a list of historical figures, the very last example in that list is some sort of terrible Um, apocalyptic event. So in the first list, he concluded with the men of Sodom and Gomorrah and what happened with Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Ultimately, fire came down from heaven, completely consuming those cities, utter destruction. And now in the second list, he concludes with the example of Korah's rebellion. Well, what happened to the people in Korah's rebellion? Literally, they're all gathered around the tents of Korah, and God opens up the earth, and the earth swallows entire families whole. This is important. So with the final reference to Korah's rebellion, it's also Jude's intent to demonstrate to his audience a model, as established by Moses and Aaron, for dealing with those who reject authority and who rebel against God's law. First, We're supposed to teach everything that God has commanded. Go back to his word and proclaim what God has said. Second, go and personally warn those who are in error. If they don't repent, separate from those who persist. We still intercede on their behalf, right? Even if we've separated from them, we love them. 
right? And our goal as Christians, right, our, our desire of our heart is that they come to repentance and rejoin, right, the people of God. And then fifth, ultimately they leave the final work of judgment to God, okay? And this is in distinction, right? Going to them when they're in error is not judgment. Ultimately, judgment is what God will do, right, at the end. In verse 12, Jude returns to his list of indictments against his opponents. He says that these people are blemishes upon your love feasts, which as we clarified a few weeks ago, was what they called their celebration of the Eucharist. They are eating without fear, though they should be afraid of the judgment of God. And this indictment that they eat with fear implicitly also indicts Jude's intended audience, right? The faithful. How is it that they've allowed these people to continue to eat among them, much less without any sense of fear of the wrath of God? It's their responsibility, as it's the responsibility of any disciple of Jesus, to let their brothers know that they are in sin. This is why Jude is so emphatic at the introduction to this letter and urging his audience to contend rather than passively sitting by and watching these people eating and drinking condemnation upon themselves, blemishing the gathering of the church. That Jude calls his opponents shepherds. Oops. Bear with me for a second. Um, Jude actually calls these people shepherds, right? That they are feeding themselves. Um, This may be another case of him weaponizing their own terminology against them, right? So they're calling themselves shepherds. They're clearly presenting themselves as leaders in the church, but their behavior betrays them. God calls people to servant leadership in his church, And the fact that they're serving themselves rather than the sheep demonstrates that they are not of God. And this leads um, next to the four metaphors. So Jude employs four metaphors to describe his opponents. First, he calls them waterless clouds. Now, as an agrarian society, the Galileans would have immediately understood this metaphor without any explanation. If rain doesn't fall, crops fail. And this can spell disaster for farmers. Imagine watching heavy clouds pass across your parched fields without delivering refreshing, sustaining water needed to support your livelihood. Those clouds are supposed to bring the rain, and yet they refuse to fulfill their purpose. In the same way, fruitless fruit trees don't bring any value to the land. If they're not productive, if they are diseased or dying, any farmer who knows his business will pull them out of that valuable real estate and replace them with something that will produce. Jude's opponents have come into the church promising divine revelation, but bringing no such thing. Further, their sexual appetites are outside the bounds of God's creational order. They've refused to be and do what they were created to be and do. And while those first two metaphors speak of Jude's opponent's failure to deliver the things that they promise, his third metaphor addresses what they do bring. So just as waves of the sea bring flotsam and jetsam to the shore, Jude's opponents are bringing a lot of junk into the church, especially their shameful behavior. As already mentioned repeatedly, their shameful greed and lust are evident in everything that they do. Lastly, Jude's metaphor of wandering stars addresses how his opponents have deviated from the path of righteousness. It's observable how all of Jude's list thus far, as we've discussed, conclude with examples of apocalyptic judgment. In his three examples of God's wrath against sinners, he concluded with Sodom and Gomorrah, entire cities utterly consumed in fire from heaven. And as three examples of peoples to whom he likened his opponents, he concluded with those who perished in Korah's rebellion, entire families swallowed up by the earth. Now he concludes his metaphors with wandering stars, condemned to utter darkness. While the previous three metaphors could have a reference in canonical scripture, there's no obvious passage to which this might be alluding 
Again, it seems that Jude is leaning upon First Enoch. In this case, chapters 18 and 21, which describes the eschatological punishment of stars that fail to follow the heavenly course set for them by the Creator. Because his opponents have similarly departed the way Jude expects that they should inherit a similar fate. Which leads to our text this morning. Jude writes, It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds, of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. And of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him, these are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires, they are loudmouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. Let's pray. Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and the comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you've given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. All right, so Jude is, is now wrapping back to this idea that there is a prophecy, right, an ancient prophecy against his opponents. While prophecy is most often used in the Bible to simply convey the foretelling of God's word, it can occasionally be used in the sense of foretelling future events. The latter meaning is definitely intended by Jude here. He's circling back to that initial argument from verse 4, where he wrote that certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for condemnation. His campaign against his opponents has been one of shock and awe, showing examples of people who were like his opponents and offering metaphors to highlight their abominable behavior. But this is his nuclear bomb argument right here. The primary particle, day, makes clear to us that this is a transition in his argument, the final total knockout moment where Jude will call out these people. All right, so um, Jude describes Enoch as the seventh from Adam. And this is a reference to Enoch, the character um, that we find in Genesis chapter 5. The book of the generations of Adam is um, what it is self-described as in in verse 1 of chapter 5. So Moses tells us in Genesis chapter 5 in this book of Adam, When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Seth were 912 years. And he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Canaan. Enosh lived after he fathered Canaan 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. When Canaan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Canaan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Canaan were 910 years, and he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years. And he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. 
Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. Now, when Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. So the number seven, um, it's a number of completion and perfection in Jewish numerology. And Enoch is listed as being the seventh generation from Adam. So on account of this, Jewish mystics revered him. Jewish tradition held that Enoch remained faithful in an era of profound ungodliness, suggesting his usefulness to Jude as a faithful prophetic authority. Now there is a dramatic shift away from the formulaic, thus all the days of this character were X number of years, and he died. Moses says nothing about Enoch dying, but rather that Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Now, this has led to the interpretation that Enoch never died, but instead was taken into heaven, perhaps something like the story of Elijah. This interpretation is validated by the author of the New Testament book of Hebrews, who in the 11th chapter, Hall of Faith, writes... By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was condemned as having ple- uh, commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Now, Ben Witherington, who I have been relying upon quite a bit um, as I've prepared for this, this is his commentary on Jude, he writes, One could hardly cite a more ancient authority or one more blessed by God than Enoch, if it was believed that first Enoch was written by the person mentioned in Genesis. Clearly, early Christians highly valued the book. All right, so what actually was this prophecy? Let's try and break this down together. So according to Jude, Enoch, seventh from Adam, delivered this prophecy against the ungodly. Now, I want you to note the frequency of the word asabes in various forms in this text. Remember, asabes is a word translated ungodly, right? That shows up at the very beginning of this book. It shows up four times to emphasize God's judgment against the ungodly. Behold, oops, sorry. Behold, okay, so that's idu, behold, elthein kurios in agias, moriasin autu. Behold, the Lord comes with a multitude or with myriads of his holy ones. Jude's audience would have understood kurios to reference the Lord Jesus, right? And it's saying that Jesus has come. Their doom is so sure that Jude can speak of it as having already happened. With myriads of his holy ones executing judgment against all and convicting all the ungodly. Those two phrases combine a single idea of executing judgment and exposing their sin for all to see. On account of all their works of ungodliness, which they have committed in an ungodly fashion. Right? There's an emphasis here. So if you look at the translation that I've written here, it says right, that he's executing judgment and conviction against all the ungodly on account of all their works of utter ungodliness which they've committed. There's a piling on of the word asebes to emphasize their utter ungodliness, which they've committed 
and all their harsh or intolerable words which they've spoken against Jesus. Again, he calls them ungodly sinners, right? Hamartoli, right? Sinners, asebes, really ungodly sinners. Now, this is the first and only example of a direct quotation in all of Jude. And surprise, surprise, it doesn't come from anywhere in our canon of Scripture. Once again, Jude is relying upon First Enoch. Now, it's important that Jude is citing what he considers to be divine revelation. Perhaps not First Enoch in its entirety, but at the very least, this prophecy. So while his opponents are quick to blasphemously pronounce judgment on their own authority, Jude follows the example of the archangel Michael in his disputation against the devil, allowing a higher authority to pronounce judgment. The effect here is that Jude is deferring to God's own judgment against his opponents. Interestingly, the Greek text of this quotation doesn't exactly match the Greek text of 1st Enoch in any of the manuscripts we currently have. So it's suspected that Jude is offering his own Greek translation of the Aramaic version, perhaps from memory. So let's look at Enoch's prophecy in context from Enoch, 1st uh, Enoch chapter 1. The word to the blessing of Enoch, wherewith he blessed the elect and righteous who will be living in the day of tribulation. When all the wicked and godless are to be removed. And he took up his parable and said, Enoch, a righteous man whose eyes were opened by God, saw the vision of the Holy One in the heavens, which the angels showed me. And from them I heard everything, and from them I understood as I saw. But not for this generation, but for a remote one which is yet to come. Concerning the elect, I said, and took up my parable concerning them. The Holy Great One will come forth from his dwelling, and the eternal God will tread upon the earth on Mount Sinai and appear in the strength of his might from his camp in the heaven of heavens, and shall be smitten with fear, and the watchers shall quake, and great fear and trembling shall seize them unto the ends of the earth. And the high mountains shall be shaken, and the high hills shall be made low, And shall melt like wax before the flame. And the earth shall be wholly rent asunder. And all that is upon the earth shall perish. And there shall be judgment upon all men. But with the righteous he will make peace. And will protect the elect. And mercy shall be upon them. And they shall all belong to God. And they shall be prospered. And they shall all be blessed. And he will help them all, and light shall appear unto them, and he will make peace with them. And here's the part that Jude is quoting. And behold, he comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all, and to destroy all the ungodly, and to convict all flesh of all the works of their ungodliness which they have committed, and of all the hard things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. We can see that there were two significant editorial changes in Jude's translation of 1st Enoch. So first, he's clarified the third masculine plural, Elphe. He has come by adding the noun kurios to indicate that the Lord Jesus is the one who has judged his opponents. Second, he's modified the clauses about judgment and condemnation so that both have been brought specifically against the ungodly rather than the broader all flesh that we see in 1st Enoch. Having read their conviction and sentence, Jude summarizes the offenses of his opponents one final time. Right? So again, this is that Greek rhetoric. He stated his purpose at the beginning. He's then made his points, and now he's coming back to say, see, I've proven my point. Right? So first, he says that they're grumblers and malcontents. Just like the unfaithful after the exodus, they've seen the powerful works of God, and yet still they deny his power and commands. Just like the fallen angels, they've rejected their role in creation and are teaching and encouraging others to do the same. Just like Cain, just like Korah, they do not accept the judgment of God and are actively challenging his authority. 
Second, they follow their lusts. Just like the fallen angels and the men of Sodom and Gomorrah, they've rebelled against God and committed abominable sexual sin. Just like Cain, they do whatever pleases themselves without concern for the statutes of God or for the harm that this may bring to their neighbor. Third, they are loudmouths. Literally translated, Jude writes that their mouths speak with great swelling. Just like Cain, they boast of their wickedness. Just like Korah's rebels, they speak against the Lord's anointed without fear. And fourth, they flatter people, and they do it for profit. Just like Balaam, they are willing to say whatever people want them to say, even if it goes against the will and command of God, and they do it for financial gain. So uh, just wanted to go a, a little bit deeper um, with the last few minutes that we have together, uh, again, talking about Jude's use of sacred texts and traditions. And this article can be found um, here in Ben Witherington's commentary. Um, so if you're interested, it's on pages 605 and 606. Ben Witherington writes, Apart from the closing doxology, few aspects of the homily of Jude have attracted more attention and caused more consternation than the author's use of various canonical and pseudepigraphal texts to build his case against the intruders. William Brosnan notes that the issue cannot be neatly divided into two categories, the way scriptures are handled and the way other materials are handled. None of the examples can be understood simply on basis of a biblical citation, but must be interpreted in light of understandings prevalent in the first century of our era. In other words, Jude exhibits a combination of text and commentary. Right? So, in other words, sacred text and sacred tradition. This is why Richard Bauckham and others rightly stress that when this book applies ancient materials... To contemporary situations and involves a contemporizing or midrashic way of handling the text, such that one can say, this is that, or this is just like that. Jude is operating out of an apocalyptic and eschatological worldview that is manifested, in this case, in assuming and asserting that ancient scriptures are not only relevant to what's happening in his own day, but were coming to pass and to fulfillment in his day. <coughs> Jude's handling of this material can be mystifying to those not familiar with early Jewish exegesis and apocalyptic and eschatological text of the era. But even this familiarity can lead to the wrong conclusions. For example, after noting that Jude cites only Jewish, not Christian sources, which is no surprise if his discourse is the earliest or one of the earliest Christian documents, Theme Perkins states, since the material includes a reference to Enoch and a tale known only from apocryphal traditions, Jude is not limited to canonical sources. The only direct quotations in the letter come from the apocryphal traditions, verses 9, 14b through 15, and the prophetic words attributed to the apostles in verse 18, which we'll look at next week. Therefore, authority does not appear to reside in the canonical text as much as it does in the testimony of ancient traditions about wickedness and divine punishment. To the contrary, it is far more likely that Jude assumes that his audience already knows or has access to the Old Testament material, and therefore he need only cite the material that they are less likely to know or have ready to hand. The following examples show that our author relies on something other than just the Old Testament here. First, Genesis 6, 1 through 4, which does refer to the sexual fraternizing of angels with human women, does not refer to the punishment of these angels or to angels leaving their proper place and violating the creation, uh, creation order. These ideas derive from later Jewish traditions found in 1st Enoch, Chapter 6, verses 1 through 2, chapter 7, verse 1, chapter 54, verses 4 through 5, 64, 12, 69, 5, the Testament of Reuben, 5, 6. 
The more one studies Jude and First Enoch together, the more one becomes impressed with how indebted our author is to this non-canonical source. Second, while Old Testament scholars debate what the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was, there is no doubt in Jude's mind that it involves sexual improprieties of a severe sort, not only of a heterosexual but also of a homosexual nature. This is very much like that found in Philo, who refers to the residents of Sodom throwing off the yokes of nature and engaging in forbidden forms of intercourse, including homosexual acts. Clearly, Jude knows and accepts these expansions of the tradition that go beyond the text of Genesis. On the destruction of the cities themselves, he seems to also know the traditions like those found in Wisdom of Solomon. Third, the story about the battle between the archangel Michael and the devil over the body of Moses, which is not found in the Old Testament at all. But according to Clement of Alexandria, it comes from a work entitled The Assumption of Moses. There's nothing remotely like this in the account of Moses' death in Deuteronomy 34, verses 5 through 6. And extant fragments of The Assumption of Moses, unfortunately, do not contain this story. Fourth, the stories of Numbers 22, 15 through 18, 31, 16, Joshua 24, 9 through 19, Nehemiah 13, 2, do not directly suggest that Balaam's error refers to greed. But later, Jewish tradition, uh, namely Philo, as well as Josephus, fills out the story along the lines that Jude follows. Fifth, none of what Jude has to say about Enoch is grounded in the Old Testament. And Jude quotes 1 Enoch 1.9 directly, which is obviously an important text for Jude, since it contains his major themes of judgment against ungodliness. Much more could be said along these lines, and Bauckham's detailed study of material deserves close scrutiny. The outcome of this study is clear. Jude reads the Old Testament through and in light of the later Jewish traditions, and he supplements the Old Testament with non-canonical traditions from the Assumption of Moses and First Enoch. Our author clearly presupposes his audience's familiarity with the wider corpus of early Jewish literature, or at least the traditions in them. Not surprisingly, he cites the extra-canonical material, but basically expects the audience to know the more familiar Old Testament stories. Jude does not cite this material because he's a lover of arcane lore or interested in esoterica. Rather, he's a skilled rhetorician, and he uses it for hortatory or paranetic purposes to warn his audience against listening to the false teachers, who are like these horrible examples In other words, Jude makes homiletical use of this material to deal with a contemporary situation that's viewed as dangerous and distressing. J. Darrell Charles sums up aptly. Possessing a striking literary style as well as strategic knowledge of writings associated with sectarian Judaism, Jude weaves a brief yet forceful polemic against his opponents, drawing on literary sources readily recognized by his audience. Into this argument, the allusions to First Enoch and the assumption of Moses are posited. As part of his literary strategy, Jude assumes and builds upon several motifs fundamental to intertestamental Jewish literature. The fate of the ungodly, theophany and judgment, rebellion in heaven and fascination with angelic powers. Today we might say that Jude throws everything at them but the kitchen sink to make the audience divest themselves of these false teachers and their teachings. The upshot is clear. If these opponents are like the worst examples in Jewish tradition, they should be avoided and shunned at all costs. That this was the successful rhetorical effect of the discourse is suggested by its finding its way into the canon, despite its small size and character. All right, so next week we're going to pick up where we left off, looking at Jude, verses 17 through 19, which references the apostolic prophecy against Jude's opponents. So we are at time. If you've got kids down the way in the uh, kids' Sunday school, feel free to go pick them up. Um, I'll just hang around for a few minutes in case anyone has questions over what we've covered today.
Yeah, Miguel. We talked a lot about the whole judgment kind of thing and how Jude is echoing the archangel, right, in, in, in handing over the judgment to God. But I feel like the people that we're talking about who would say, like, don't judge, would still call what he's doing judgment. Yeah, negative that's is right. There, is it that there's a difference in the use of the, the word judgment there? Yeah. We have to maybe think of a better definition. Yeah, so I think when Jude talks about judgment, he's talking about final judgment, eschatological judgment, um, divine wrath being poured out upon people. So what our contemporaries would call judgment, he would tend to call something more like warning. Um, so, I mean, think about it this way. If, if, if you're driving along the highway and you see some people standing on the side of the road, they're waving their hands at you, telling you, stop, don't go any further. The way that you're going, right, is bad. The road's going to end and something terrible is at the end of the road. Okay, we wouldn't call that judgment, right? That's not judgmental to warn people that the path that they're going down leads to disaster. Actually, it's the kindest thing somebody could possibly do. Um, so I, I think that's how Jude would, would view it. Yeah. Does that answer your question? Yeah, I think it does. I just think, it, I think it, there's a disconnect when we talk about uh, even just the, the definition of the word judgment is something. Yeah. Yeah, to admonish somebody is not to pronounce final judgment against them. Which I think maybe just shows a disbelief in an eschaton for them. Like there's not that, you know. Sure. The only judgment that could possibly happen is earthly, you know. Right, which, I mean, is also true of Jude's own opponents, right? Um, that's why he says their light came, right? God condemned Cain, and Cain continued to live, right, in a, in a sinful, ungodly, reckless way because he didn't think God was ever going to make good on his condemnation. Yeah. Any other questions? All right. How many more Possibly two or three more weeks. So next week, we're going to take a look at the apostolic prophecy. The week after that, we're going to get into application. What is it that Jude wants his audience to do? Um, and then depending on how we're doing with time, there may or may not be a third session when we look at the doxology. Yeah, you're welcome. All right. Well, thanks, everybody. Hope you have a wonderful week, and we'll see you next Sunday.